So, <laughs> this isn't a joke. This is quite the opposite of a joke, actually. Um, if you were to ask to top 10 answers on the board, 100 people surveyed, what they think the saddest song of all time would be, I would bet a lot of them would probably say, He Stopped Loving Her Today by George Jones. It's a sad song. If you're not familiar with it, um, George Jones recorded it, written by Curly Putnam and Bobby Braddock, which is just fun to say, Curly Putnam and Bobby Braddock. song tells the story of a man who told his lady that he said, I'll love you till I die. Okay, That's what he said, I'll love you till I die. She told him, you'll forget in time. And through the song, of course she leaves because it's a country song. Women don't stay around in country songs. Um, but he never stops loving her, says he kept her picture on the wall. He kept love letters by his bed, dated 1962. And all kinds of sad stuff for a guy trapped in a love for a woman who's gone. Well, at the end of the song, we find out that they're having the guy's funeral. And it's the first time anyone had seen him smile in years. And the narrator singer says that, he's, that, that as he looks at the guy in the coffin, he thought, this time he's over her for good. Yikes. That's sad, y'all. And I don't know if that's a tearjerker or just emotional abuse. I'm not sure. It may be both. But I don't think that's the saddest song ever. I've got another candidate. Okay? The year was 1990. A guy named Doug Stone, who is a perennial favorite of mine. And he had a song called, I'd Be Better Off in a Pine Box. For those of y'all that don't know what a pine box is, it's a coffin. Okay? So the title kind of gives it away, doesn't it? Well, let me just, let me just, of course it's about a guy who lost a girl. And here's the chorus. You ready? Who, who knows this song, by the way? Show of hands. Oh, three of you. Okay. <laughs> Listen to this chorus, okay? I'd be better off in a pine box on a slow train back to Georgia or in the gray walls of a prison doing time. I think I'd rather die and go to hell and face the devil than to lie here with you and him together on my mind. Yikes. Now again, that, I, that's, that's like, I don't know if this guy's in love or if he's got a mental illness. I don't know what's going on here. But it's sad, right? I want you to think about those words. I'd be better off in a pine box, which is saying, I'd be better off dead. It would be better if I was dead than what I'm experiencing now. And that's a pretty awful statement, isn't it? Well, hold on to your hats, cuz. Jesus is going to make as shocking, if not a more shocking statement, in our passage today. In this passage, five, six, seven, five whole verses, is a doozy. So if you would please stand as we read these five verses and there is nothing that is innocuous in the Word of God. We do believe these are the very words of God inspired by the Holy Spirit recorded by Matthew for us to read today and just marvel at this. Jesus speaking, Matthew chapter 18 verses 5 through 9. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. 
Woe to this world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by who the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Let's pray. Father, we know that by the tone of the words that we've just read that this is a serious deal. This is a big deal. And Jesus was making it plain that this is incredibly important. So I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to listen, to pay attention, and most of all, God, to go out and do something about what we hear today. Challenge us, chasten us, discipline us, encourage us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Wow. What a passage. Again, we can read these five verses and go on to the next five verses and go on to the following five verses and, on, and not linger here well enough, long enough to understand the import of what Jesus just said. So we're going to dwell here. We're going to linger here and listen and hopefully obey. Now we said last week that the first four verses of chapter 18 that we covered in that message were foundational to understanding the next few messages, probably even the rest of chapter 18 overall, which is a pretty major discourse of Jesus's. So for a quick review, if you weren't here, and if you were, what did we see last week? The disciples wanted to know who was greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And they had even argued about it on their trip back to Capernaum. They'd been up in the north and away, and they're coming back to their home base. And they were arguing about who was greatest in the kingdom, with implications being... I think I am. I think I am. No, I think I am. And Jesus confronts them about it. And he answers their question of who is greatest by taking a small child. And we said that was an infant or a toddler, a small child. Takes this child into his arms. And then he says that unless one is converted and becomes like that child, they will never enter the kingdom of heaven, much less be great. He then says that whoever humbles himself like this baby, this small child... That person is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself and becomes like this baby is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, this small child in Jesus' arms is the picture, we said last week. This small child is the perfect illustration of what it means to know Jesus, to trust Jesus, and to be a follower of Jesus. Okay? So Jesus takes that illustration and begins to build on it in today's passage. So keep that child in mind. Jesus had him front and center right here in his arms or on his lap or something. Keep the picture of a believer as a helpless child on the forefront of your mind as we look at today's passage, which starts in verse 5. Small child, baby, in Jesus' arms. Now, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, Jesus says. So again, Jesus is sitting here. And he's teaching his disciples with this little child, this baby, in his arms. And he's using that child as an object lesson about the kingdom of the heavens. 
and those who are a part of that kingdom. And he makes a move here from calling them to be like this child to receiving this child, one such child. So last week we were talking about becoming like this child, and now if we are going to be faithful in the kingdom of the heavens, we also have to receive such children. You see the shift? You see the move here? So now this is not about who we are as much as about what we do. And he makes a move here from being like a child to receiving one such child. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So we've moved from a call to be like this child, to be admitted into the kingdom, and humbling yourself like this child to be great in the kingdom, and we've moved into receiving one such child. Jesus is now focusing on how his children, his little ones, are to be treated. And the call is to receive one such child. The word receive means a lot of things, and here it refers to a mindset of hospitality. And it has shades of meaning, including to receive favorably, to give ear to, to embrace, to make one's own, to approve, and not to reject. Now just think about this little child in Jesus' arms, a little baby, we'll settle on, we'll say one-year-old. Again, I don't know how old the kid was, but let's just think one-year-old. Now, can children be received in a way that is not favorable? Is that possible? Sure it is. Can children be in situations where people don't give ear to them? Yeah. What was the old saying? Children are to be seen and not heard. Jesus says, uh, no. Right? Is there a way that little children could not be embraced? Could, could little children not be approved of? Could little children be rejected? Sure. Absolutely. And now think of how this little baby, this little child, would be affected by such things. Jesus is setting the stage for how we are to treat each other in our dealings with His people specifically. How His people are supposed to treat His people. Remember, the child represents the believer. How are we to treat each other? And Jesus says here, like a little child who needs a lot of care, who needs a lot of attention. Does your phone ever ring or do you ever get a number pop up on your screen or a text or something? You go, oh, oh. And you're like, uh, do I want to see this or not? Just me? Okay, whatever. I don't believe you. Jesus says to receive other believers like a child who needs a lot of care, a lot of love, a lot of embracing. So Jesus charges His men to first become like children, humbling themselves, and then to receive or care for one another like you're dealing with this little child needing care, nurture, needing received and embraced, caring more for their needs than your own. Sounds a lot like what we talked about last week, doesn't it? Sure it does. And Jesus is amplifying that message and giving specific directions to follow the general rule. And note the specific that follows the call to receive these little ones. Whoever receives one such child in my name. And that's, this is key. It's incredibly important. We, we're familiar with the concept of praying in Jesus' name, right? 
We close every prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. It's almost like that's one word. In Jesus' name, amen. It's not, okay? We are praying in Jesus' name. Okay? And what's going on there is He told us to do that so that we might know that our prayers will be heard on account of His work, of His virtue, not just our wishes and wants. But here... We're not talking about praying in Jesus' name. Rather, we're talking about receiving other believers like precious children in the name of Jesus. Now, what's that mean? Well, it's the same vein of thought as praying in Jesus' name, but apply it to a different action. Instead of praying in Jesus' name on account of His work and virtue, we receive others in His name. Do it like you are Jesus doing it. Invoke Him. Invoke His name, His goodness, His desires, His glory in what you do. Be like Him and do what He would do. It became cliche a few years ago. What would Jesus do, right? That's a pretty doggone good question to ask. What would Jesus do in this situation with this person that is His child? His little child. How would Jesus treat this person? Would He receive them or would He cast them out? And He's saying clearly, receive them and receive them in My name. We've used this verse a lot, Colossians 3.17, in a lot of application points, but I think it fits well here. Paul tells the Colossians, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So, do everything. In the name of Jesus. Paul says in Colossians that we should do whatever we do in word or deed in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And that's exactly what we're talking about here in Matthew 18.5 regarding receiving a believer. Regarding receiving, welcoming the children of God in our lives. Just like Jesus receiving this little child into His arms... By the power, listen, by the power of the same Spirit that empowered Jesus, we welcome and nurture our brothers and sisters in Christ as if we were Jesus Himself. We do what He did. We do what He would do if He were here now. We are, as the church, the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. So we operate in His name as His body in the power of the same Spirit that empowered Him. We're His ambassadors, the Scripture says. We are His people in this world, and we are to show the world who He is by what we do. So that's how we do this, and and that's all things in the name of Jesus. We do what He would do. But now watch this. In the end of this verse, right before the comma, what's it say? Jesus says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now watch this flow. We do what we do in receiving the children of God in the name of, in the likeness of, and in doing so, in the the likeness of Jesus, and in doing so, Jesus says we receive Him. In receiving His children, we are receiving Him. In being like Him and receiving those who are His, we receive Him. Do what you do, like I would do, Jesus says, and you'll be doing it in my name, and as a result, you're really doing kindness to me in my name. Be like Jesus, to treat Jesus as people like Jesus would treat them, and it'll be like you're treating Jesus that way. 
which if you're thinking rightly, is a pretty good outcome based on a pretty good action. Receive little ones in Jesus' name, and in the process, receive Jesus in Jesus' name, and trust Jesus to bless and reward you for being like Him and doing what He would do in receiving Him. That's a whole lot of Jesus. And that's the point. Jesus is saying that He's all over and all in this process, encouraging believers to receive believers and care for them like little children with this receiving being done like Jesus, by Jesus, for Jesus, and to Jesus. So read that again. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Who doesn't want to receive Jesus? If you're His follower, I want all of them that I can get. I want every breath that I can breathe in to be about Him and receive Him. So that's good motivation and good instruction. Be like this child and be like me in receiving this child and you'll be receiving me. Now we could dwell here a long time and just say that over and over and over in different ways. But we've got to move on. So verse 6 then takes a very decisive turn. Check it out. But... Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Wow, that's quite a statement. We came out of verse 5 with Jesus talking about warm and cuddly things, little children, him being like him, receiving him. And then verse 6 starts with that word, but... Yes, whoever receives one of these little ones in my name receives me, but, but what? But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Yikes! Receiving good, but there's another option besides receiving this little one. You can also cause one of these little ones who believe in Jesus to sin. And note, that is a juxtaposition. You can receive the little ones, or conversely, you can cause them to sin. So it seems that not receiving these little ones can cause them to sin. If we're not welcoming and helpful to other believers, it may lead them to sinning. It may lead them to falling or stumbling. And there's also the possibility of just simply causing others to sin, not necessarily not receiving them, but there is the option, there is the possibility of causing other people to sin. And it's not a good possibility. So my question is, how might we do that? How might we cause somebody else to sin? Unfortunately, there's a lot of different ways. Not just not receiving them. We can teach them wrongly. We can agitate them. We can ignore them. We can invite them into our sinful acts or patterns. Oh, it's okay. We can arrogantly pass judgment on them. We can fail to correct them. And on and on and on and on. And that's something worth thinking about for a long time. I'm going to be honest with you. In preparing for this message, I just stop and scratch my head and say, when's the last time I was concerned about leading someone else into sin? It hasn't been very recently, I can tell you that. It's not a habit or a practice that I'm familiar with in evaluating myself. What am I doing? What am I saying? What am I not doing? What am I not saying? What am I teaching that may be leading other people into sin? And Jesus is making this a very big deal today. And so should we. 
We should think about it for a long time. Not just here and now in this message. It would be a very good practice to evaluate and think about and pray about what you are doing that may be causing someone else to sin. Because remember, these fellow believers, these little ones, are in the arms of Jesus. They are His. And what we do for them, to them, we do to Him. And that's bad. It's like doing it unto Him. Of course, we're not going to lead Jesus into sin. We know better than that. But we can lead one of His little ones into sin. And it's like doing it unto Him. And that's bad. So bad, in fact, that Jesus says it would be better if that person who led this little one into sin was dead. He's saying it would be better for them if they were in a pine box on a slow train back to Dan or Beersheba. I don't know. Actually, he doesn't say a pine box. He says it'd be better if they had a great millstone around their neck thrown into the sea and carried quickly to the bottom of that sea to drown and die. Jesus said that. It would be better for that person to drown quickly than leading one of his little ones into sin. Now take a minute or so and really breathe this in. Jesus just said that if there is someone who causes a believer in him to sin, it would be better for them to die an awful death. And that awful death would have been very vivid for his primarily Jewish audience. Everybody would have been familiar with a millstone in Jesus' day. Most people would have had a, a little millstone in their home to help them grind the grain, kind of like a microwave in our day. Everybody had a millstone. You know, just something that they had. But those were pretty small, those household ones. That's not what Jesus is referring to here. No, he says it's a great millstone. The Greek wording is onikos milos. Now we can hear meal in milos, but what does onikos mean? This was fun. It means relating to a donkey. Like what? This kind of millstone, this great millstone was so big, it had to have a donkey attached to it in order to move it. It was a donkey millstone, a big one. Too many jokes here that I'm not going to go with, but stay with me. This kind of millstone, this great millstone, was a donkey millstone. Jesus says that if someone causes one of his little ones, one of his followers to sin, it would be better if they had one of these big donkey millstones tied around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. John MacArthur says that the Jews had a very common, well-known fear of drowning. It was like the worst way to go for them in their minds. And they talked about it. They saw the sea as the agent of chaos. It was the depths. It was Sheol. It was the place of the dead. And they had this great, almost unnatural fear of drowning. It was very common in that day. It was horrible, terrible to think about drowning. So Jesus pumps up the volume of that fear, saying that anyone who causes one of His followers to sin, they're going to be in really, really bad shape. Worse shape than you can imagine. The millstone drowning, sleeping with the fishes kind of thing would be better than causing one of these little ones to sin. They'd be better off with a millstone on a fast train to the bottom of the sea. Why? Why so drastic and vivid a picture? Because for my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. Those He saves are His delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in His holy sight. 
Christ will hold me fast. It's very important to Jesus that His little ones not be led into sin because Jesus cares for those who are His. He protects them like He would protect a little child and if someone causes them to sin, which Jesus hates, and that sin will also harm this little one, Jesus is going to make sure that they are taken care of. And taken care of in a way that's better than being carried at breakneck speed to the bottom of the sea. And what's he talking about? He's talking about hell. It would be better for them to die quickly than to spend eternity in hell. Because people that consistently cause my children to stumble, they're going to hell. Because sin's a big deal and God has to judge sin and people who are sinning and leading His people into sin are going to pay an eternal price. It would be better if they just got a millstone tied around their neck and thrown in the sea. That would be better than what they will face in eternity. He's going to take care of His own. He's going to make sure that they're taken care of. Receiving Jesus' little ones is good. Really good. Causing them to sin is bad. Really bad. So the question is, who can lead these little ones to sin? Look at verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Now again, quite a statement. We just ended the last verse coverage by asking who can possibly lead these little ones of Jesus to sin. Well, it turns out lots of people can and will. And the world itself is a source of those temptations. Jesus starts the verse by saying, Woe. He's not like, Woe. He's saying, Woe. Okay? We say, Woe, a lot, or we read a lot in Scripture, but what does it really mean? A good place to start by, to know what this means is to start by what's the opposite of it. What did Jesus say back in the Beatitudes? Blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed, 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 blessed. Blessedness is the opposite of woe. Okay? And blessedness um, that, that Jesus was talking about there in the Beatitudes meant to be happy or to be envied or to be favored in the blessing of God. That's what blessed meant. Well, woe is the opposite of that. The word woe was commonly used for communicating judgment by the prophets and priests of God. It's a pronouncement of coming trouble, coming action by God in a negative or bad sense. An announcement of woe meant that God sees and God is going to take retributive action. But the people who have the woe pronounced over them aren't seeing this judgment in the moment. It's coming, but it's not here yet. So instead of being happy or envied, like those who are blessed or blessed, the woe crowd is to be seen as those who are living with looming, just, miserable judgment coming their way. Anybody ever heard what they say when they're walking an inmate out through death row when he's going to the chair or whatever? What do they proclaim? Dead man walking. And this woe pronouncement is basically that. They're not being punished right now, but it's coming. It's as sure as the fact that they are drawing air. Whoa! This death row inmate ain't dead yet, but he's going to be. Now imagine that state, and that might help us understand this pronouncement of woe. And who is this woe declared upon here? Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So temptations come through the world, 
and they come through one. Both and. World and one. And woe on them both. The world system, listen to me, please, in the midst of everything that's going on in our culture today, please listen to me, the world system is fallen. The world system is sinful. The heart of man is full of sin. Mine is, yours is. And you don't have to look far to see that. And let me just... No, I better not. I better not. The world system is in a fallen state right now. A sinful state. And woe to the world. Because that world system will come under condemning judgment. That will happen. Jesus is coming back to set all things right. And when He does, He is going to condemn the systems of the world. All of them. And He's going to make them right. And Jesus says that it's necessary that these temptations come. That word necessary literally means inevitable. It's going to happen. The world is going to generate temptations to sin. It's inevitable. 1 John 5.19 says this, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Back when, they, back when modern thought was the thing that was really popping up, which was pre-World War I, they're coming out of the 20s, out of the Depression, the Roaring Twenties, everything's looking beautiful and wonderful. Well, then they've got a World War I, then they've got World War II. And, and their thought pattern before the World Wars was, we're just getting better and better and better and better, and we're going to work upward until we're just in utopia. And everything's going to be perfect because we are good. We are powerful. We are smart. We are innovative. And look at us go. Look at us go. Look at us go. And then the whole world fell apart. And people stopped thinking we're good and we're going to get to utopia. And they started thinking everything's bad. And nothing's ever going to be right. So what's the use in dealing with anything which brought us into postmodern thought? With all the chaos... All the craziness that's going on in the world right now, listen to me, the sinful world is under the power of the evil one. That's where we live. Remember Matthew 13? Let the wheat and the tares grow up together. Let the mustard bush get so big that the birds are living in its branches. That's where we live. We are never going to reform this world to the point that there's no sin in it. And the sinful heart of man is going to create and, and perpetuate and do sinful things. And there is no amount of reform in the world that's going to undo that. Does that mean we sit idly by and say, oh, well, we can't help it? No, absolutely not. Jesus says it's terrible, it's awful, and woe well unto the world because of these things. The world is sinful and temptations will come from it and woe well upon it. But, Jesus says... Woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. So that zooms the microscope in. Let's get our eyes off of the world and let's get our eyes on ourselves. Temptation can come from one, anyone, everyone. And the world holds some of the condemnation, but so does the one. Woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Listen to me. It can be any of us. And woe to us if it is. Boil that down to the bare necessities. If you are leading people into sin, if you are one through whom temptation comes, woe upon you. Woe upon me. If I'm the one doing it. 
And who is Jesus talking to here? Remember, he's talking to his disciples. They are his focus. So this is a direct warning to him, to, from him to his men to not cause other people, other believers, other little ones to sin. Because if you do, you're not blessed, you're woed. But I hope that you're asking, can I be woed? Would Jesus pronounce woe upon me if I'm a believer? Because there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? How many times have we said, God's not mad at you, Christian. He's got no wrath to spend. Propitiation. So would Jesus pronounce a woe upon His people? I hope you're asking yourself that question. And we do know, without a doubt, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Absolutely. So is He not talking to them? Well, actually, yes, He is. He is warning them against leading other believers into sin because they can. You don't think you can lead somebody else into sin, Christian? You've lost your mind, if that's how you think. You lead yourself into sin all the time, don't you? And you can invite other people with you. So what's he saying here? They can lead people into sin, so can they be woed? And I would say yes, in that, they will not be walking in the blessedness of the kingdom. Am I saying they're not saved? No, I'm not saying that. They will be ultimately blessed, but they will be walking in immediate woe not enjoying close fellowship with their master, and actually they're directly opposing him. And again, we do it every day. God will discipline them. God will correct them, and they will persevere, as will all of God's people. But in that moment, in doing those things, and leading other people to do those things, they will know woe if they lead other people to sin. Herb Hodges said, if you can keep sinning or leading other people to sin and God doesn't take you behind the woodshed and beat the hell out of you, you are not His child. Woe upon you. Nobody likes the discipline of God. Ever been disciplined by God? It's a woeful thing and a blessed thing both. I fear the discipline of God. And that's the woe that is pronounced upon the believer who leads other believers into sin. And I don't want it. I'm, I'm thankful for it. I think about the times that I've had to spank my kids. I don't like that. I've never once enjoyed spanking my kids. And I'm pretty sure they never once liked it either. Woe upon them in that moment, but it's for the correction. So yes, woe upon anybody, believer or non-believer, who leads other people into sin. Imminent woe. And as for those who aren't Christians, who are sinners leading others to sin, their woe is both imminent and forthcoming. They are dead men walking. It would be better for them to have a big rock around their neck and thrown into the sea. So what's the big word here? The big word is don't. Do not lead others into temptation. Make sure that you are not leading others into temptation. Jesus is making it clear that this is a big deal to him. This is a priority of His for His own. That's bound to happen, He says, but don't be the one that it happens through.
Because woe is them. Woe are them. I don't know what the verb tense is. And then the passage ends with verses 8 and 9. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. Oh, I need you to change that, Dave, if you can. It's not changing up here. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, if you've been with us through the Gospel of Matthew, we've heard this before. Back in chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And then verse 30, And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So that's not the exact same wording, but it's awful close. The thought pattern is exactly the same. It's just not the exact same wording. And what he's saying in both passages is to deal decisively and fully with your own sin. Do what you have to do in order to eradicate every vestige of sin in your own personal life. The wording is hyperbolic, it's hyperbole, meaning that Jesus is not calling on His people to self-harm in order to find ways to stop sinning. When we were going through this in Matthew 5, we said that the rest of the Bible shows us that harsh treatment of the body has no value against disciplining our sinful hearts. By way of review, we covered this then. We'll cover it again today real quickly. Colossians 2, 20-23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So... Remember, you interpret the Bible with the Bible. Not according to just the passage in the moment. You've got to take it and weigh it. So is Jesus saying, literally, to pluck out your eye, cut off your hand, cut off your foot? And the answer is no, because the rest of the Bible tells us that doesn't help. Jesus, as a good teacher, is using hyperbole to get a point across by making people go, Whoa! Gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. This is a big deal! So we use the Bible to interpret the Bible to say Jesus is using hyperbole. Does that mean it's not a big deal? Just the opposite. It is a big deal. It's a huge deal. Okay? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So that's just to remind us that Jesus is not counting on us gouging out our eyes or cutting off our limbs to fight sin. That's not the way that we fight sin. He is saying to deal drastically with your sin, going to extreme lengths to make sure you're getting the roots of it. He's saying to deal with it completely. Let me ask you a question. If the doctor came in and said, hey, you've got a cancerous growth, and we can cut it all out, or we can just cut some of it out. Um, hmm. Is it more invasive if you cut it all out? Oh yeah, absolutely. But if we cut it all out, it'll all be gone. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Hey, you know what, Doc? Just cut 20% out. I'll take my chances. I hope you're not going to say that. Jesus is saying, cut out 100% of it. 
Deal with any avenue that sin is coming into your life through your eyes, through your ears, through your life, through your heart, and block any entrance that you can to any sin getting in because sin coming in is going to be sin coming out. Garbage in, garbage out. Sin in, sin out. And Jesus is saying, deal with it all. Cut it all out. This is how we deal with our sin. Jesus is bringing up... Jesus is bringing our passage today, I'm sorry, to a close by turning our focus to our own sin to complement His call to make sure we don't cause others to sin. You see the flow there? Don't lead others into temptation. Deal with your own sin. How are we going to best help not lead other people into temptation? By dealing with our own sin. Let me tell you what, the problems with the world are not out there. The problems with the world are in here. The problems of the world are in your heart and in my heart. And my call is to deal with myself so that I can help lead others, so that I can help help others and not lead them into the same sins that I'm falling into. Deal with your own sin and make sure that you're not leading other people into sin. So we've talked a lot about sin today. So guess what we're going to talk about in application? Sin. Ours, theirs, the world's. And we're going to do it through three. I don't think I've ever used this letter before. I'm smiling under my mask, y'all. Three O's. O-O-O. Here comes application, right? Number one O is orb. You're like, what? Stay with me. Number two is ours, and number three is others. Okay? Orb, ours, others. These are my favorite application points ever, in case you can't tell. Look, look, I, I, look, I can't stop. Oh, okay, orb. Look, what in the world are you talking about with orb? Application one is orb. I keep saying it because I want to. Here we are dealing with sin in light of the world. And what is the world? It's an orb orbiting the sun. See there? Orb. Orb. Royal Orbison. Oh, pretty woman. <laughs> I'm just stuck. I'm stuck on orb. I can't get unstuck. Somebody put a penny on my head. Maybe that'll get me past the sticking point here. Anyway. Orb. Okay, it's a reach, but it's an O word. It's a good O word. So either way, we have to know that the world, listen to me, the world is set against us. And the world is bound to lead us to sin. Jesus said in our passage today, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come. So from what Jesus says there, it is evident that the world is inevitably going to lead us into temptation. Part of the application is just knowing that. So we have to know and appropriate into our lives the truth that we have to be waging war against these temptations. Classic passage for this is 1 John 2, 15-17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away. Woe to it! Along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now... Could it be any clearer than that? Now, ask yourself this question. Do you love the world? And I'm not talking about nature and butterflies and waterfalls. 
Do you love the things of the world? Christian. Because John says, under the inspiration of the Spirit, that if you do, the love of the Father is not in you. This is tough. This is piercing. This is soul surgery. I've got to be honest with you. There's some things in the world that I like a lot. And I shouldn't. I shouldn't. We have to be actively fighting the constant pull and allure of the world. All the world as a system, all that it has to offer for us are desires that are contrary to knowing, loving, and serving God. I need to read that again. All the world as a system, all that it has to offer for us are desires that are contrary to knowing, loving, and serving God. The world holds out sin on a stick and makes it look desirable to us. And we have to make sure that we, as individuals and as the church corporately, are focusing on the things of God, not the things of the world. Know your enemy, but focus on God. We read 1 John 5.19 earlier. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Do not forget this. We are not to be attracted to the world and its temptations. We don't deal with the world's problems like the world deals with the world's problems. We deal with the hearts of men, with the hearts of individuals, calling them to repentance out of their sin so that their sinful heart might be renewed. I am not seeking power. I am not seeking to fix the system because the system is damned. And so are the people in it. So we beg them to be made right with God through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We are not to be attracted to the world and its temptations. We do not deal with the world's problems the way that the world deals with the world's problems. We don't look like or think like the world. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Don't let the world program you and tell you how to do what you think you should do. Go to the Word of God and be transformed by the renewing of your mind, washed clean by the water of the Word, not seeking men's Solutions to men's problems because it's never going to work. Am I saying be indifferent? No, I'm saying be very engaged in understanding that the world's not going to work, so run from it. Repent of it. And be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Scripturally, biblically, corporately. That's going to make much more of a difference than anything else that you see going on in the world today in your life, in your family's life, in the life of unbelievers? Am I condemning protest? No. No way, shape, or form. Thank God we live in a country where we can peacefully assemble and protest. It's a guaranteed right of ours. Do that. Absolutely do that. And don't count on that to fix men's hearts. It's not going to. Give them gospel. That's what's going to work. And that's not going to fix everything. The world is condemned. Woe unto the world. 
So that's orb. Know the world, resist the world, and don't use the world's methods to try to fix the world because it's never going to happen. The world is under condemnation. Second application point is ours. O-U-R-S. Jesus told us in our passage today to deal drastically with our own sins. And we should. So my question in this application point is, what are you doing, what am I doing in my life to kill the sin that is in my life? Oh, what song was it? Uh, The last song we sang, Jesus, thank you. Your blood has washed away my sins. Now the original wording says sin. And that's wrong. Let me tell you why that's wrong. Because I still have indwelling sin in me. The blood of Jesus did not wash away my sin. But the blood of Jesus did wash away my sins. There's the expiation part of what we were talking about Wednesday night. The blood of Jesus washed away my sins, but indwelling sin remains. Sins plural have been dealt with. Sin in uh, singular in me is being dealt with and will be dealt with completely one day, but not yet. I know that nothing good dwells in me, Paul said, that is in my flesh. Because that's where sin dwells. So what are you doing, what am I doing to kill that sin? It's always going to be there. What are you doing to fight it and to try to kill it? Jesus said it's necessary or inevitable that temptations may come. So you may be like, what's the use? If they're going to come, what's the point? Well, the Bible shuts us in real quick there. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So yeah, it's inevitable that temptations come, and God makes it clear here that every one of them that come your way, He will provide a way of escape. So don't blame yourself in the world and say, well, I can't help it, sin's just going to happen. No! Kill it! Use the way of escape so that you might be able to bear it and not sin when the temptation is there. He will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What are you doing to kill sin? Romans 8, 12-13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, and boy, there's a key phrase, you put to death the deeds of the body, sin, you will live. We have to call upon the very power of God, the very Holy Spirit of God within us to say, help me kill this sin. And I think it would help a whole lot if you look to God and say, I'm going to be honest with you, I like it. Why do we sin? Because we like it. And until we admit that to God, we're never going to effectively deal with our sin. I need the power of the Holy Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body because the body says, we like this, you enjoy this, you've always liked this. Okay, I'll do it then. By the power of the Spirit, we have to put to death the deeds of the body. By the power of the Spirit of God, we have to put to death the deeds of the body. Colossians 3, 5-11. I've got to hurry. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Woe! In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all the way. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Listen, when we're fighting sin and we're putting sinful notions and sinful tendencies and sinful acts away, all of a sudden there's something beautiful happening. Everything is about Christ. And I'm not looking at my brother anymore in the flesh. I'm looking at my brother through the lens of Christ. And there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all because I've put to death my sinful tendencies. And until those sinful, sinful tendencies are dealt with, I'm never going to look at my brother, my enemy, my neighbor the way that I should, my white brother, my white enemy. My black, yellow enemy. Until sin is dealt with in the power of the Spirit and all these things are taken out of our way. Until I've dealt with my own sin. Until we have dealt with our own sin and put it to death. We have no hope of any kind of reconciliation in our day and time. But when we do put to death our own sin... When I am focused on my wrongs, not the wrongs of others, my wrongs, my sin, and I'm dealing with that, Christ is all and Christ is in all. Oh, now you're talking reconciliation. Now you're talking about hope. Now you're talking about love for your brother, your neighbor, and your enemy. But not until you deal with your own sin. Orb, ours, and finally others. This is really the point of the passage. And the question is, in this application point, what are you doing to make sure you're not leading others into sin? What are you doing to make sure you're not leading other people into sin? Because if you're leading other people into sin, whoa! It would be better if a giant millstone was hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea you'd be better off in a pine box on a slow train back to Georgia. And actually, you will die and go to hell and face the devil if you're not careful about not leading other people into sin. If that's not in your heart, in your mind, in your life, you don't know Jesus. You don't know Him. So what are you going to do about it? That's the application point. Galatians five thirteen through 15 For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're talking about not leading our neighbor into sin. You're not going to lead your neighbor into sin if you're loving him rightfully, if you're loving her rightfully in the power of the Spirit. The whole law is fulfilled. In one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But let me tell you something that we're not good at in the Christian community. We're not good at loving each other. We bite and devour one another. We fight and fuss. 
and tell everybody why they're wrong and what they're doing wrong. And there's a time for correction. But are you leading other people into sin by your fussing and fighting, by your biting and devouring? Paul says the Galatians were. Are you receiving each other like a little child in Jesus' lap? Or are you looking at other people and saying, enemy, enemy, I'm going to prove them wrong, I'm going to shut them down. Especially each other, our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a lot of doctrinal error out there. I've probably committed some today. I hope I haven't. But if I think I'm the end-all, be-all, and I know everything and everybody, everything that everybody else says is stupid and wrong, I'm biting and devouring. I'm not loving. You were called to freedom. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide. You, me, us, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I pray that if nothing else comes out of this message today, that we walk out these doors and say, I I have decided. I've made a decision to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of our brother because it would be better if I was dead than to do that. Remember that connection established between the believer, this little child, and Jesus. If you do it unto him, you do it unto me. We have got to protect and keep each other safe. We've got to love and bless and encourage each other, not bite and devour each other. We've got to decide to never put a stumbling block. And that's a huge calling, especially in today's culture. What are you going to do to make sure that you are not putting a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother? We talked about this a lot last week. If it's in my power to do something that's going to keep somebody from stumbling, I'm going to do it in the power of the Spirit. It's not my job to prove them wrong. It's my job to love them. We finished last week with Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Well, the next to last passage today is Philippians 2, 1 through 4. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is what it looks like to not put a stumbling block in your brother's path. I am not concerned with my own rights. I am more concerned with your needs, your wants, your desires. Welcoming you, loving you, taking care of you than I am my own self. And I want to finish with this. 1 Peter 4, 17-18 For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Our judgment does not start out there. Our judgment starts in here. What's in my heart? What's in our heart? And how can I best bless, encourage, strengthen, protect 
other people. Other people. One another, yes. Doing good to all men, especially those of the household of the faith. But it's time for judgment to begin right here. Stop throwing rocks. Stop it. Quit it. You're not going to fix them out there by throwing rocks. You're going to fix them out there by fixing things in here and in here and by becoming more concerned with others' needs than your own. Woe to you. Woe to me if this is not the way that we think. Let's pray. God, the 46 and a half years of life that I've lived have taught me one thing. I am a great sinner. And you are a great Savior. God, I admit I like sin. I like it. It's pleasurable for a season. And God, I pray that we would be those individuals and this group corporately who care so much about Your holiness and Your glory and Your good that we deal with our own sin so that we might be a blessing to others. That we might stand against the ways and the schemes of the world, pluck out the sinful roots in our hearts, and lay down our lives for other people so that we don't put a hindrance or stumbling block in their path. God, I pray that You would write on our hearts this very moment a passion and a desire to lay down our lives and to make sure, God, that we would make sure that we would never put a stumbling block to anybody coming to You. The only stumbling block that we present would be the cross and that they would stumble over that cross and be crushed and that You would pick them up and make them new again. God, may it not be our sinful attitudes, our sinful hearts, our sinful words that make people stumble and keep them from You. Woe unto the world and woe unto the one through whom temptation comes, God. Help us to know this and show it in our lives. And may we deal with the sin that so easily entangles us by the power of Your Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a great day.